Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? You can watch this. Oh. I got an email from someone who had a very similar problem. He says, I don't know if I like this sex, but what I truly believe is that I like the attention. Is that possible, Carol? Could I possibly like the attention more than the sexual acting out? Well, I believe when somebody asks the question, they have the answer. And yes, that is 100% true. When you are trying to figure out what you want in life and somehow you fuse that with sexuality, with perhaps finding an abundance of people to experiment with, to experience that first phase of lust when they're telling you how much they like you, when they're telling you how great you are, or if you're paying for sex, if you're experiencing transactional sex, you better believe you're hearing nice things about you. They wanted your money. You think you're exploiting them, but they are exploiting you. And isn't that, isn't that sad? So when Russell says, I like sex, but he also likes the attention, he's absolutely right. I actually call it the three A's, affection, appreciation, and attention. The thing is, after a while, that type of interpersonal communication stops. And then it's time to find somebody else. And so it's really important to take a look at 
what you believe you need and actually figure out how to give it to yourself. I was talking to a woman today. She's married to a sex addict, and she said, I want him to check in with me. I want him to find out how I'm doing. I want him to notice when I'm sad. And what I told her is, yes, she has every right to want her partner to notice when she's sad. But the truth of the matter is, if she wants his attention, and she actually said this, she said, I found a fairly effective way of getting his attention, and that is when I'm sad. If she wants his attention, I suggested that she work on figuring out how to give herself attention, you know, how to enjoy herself. I'm not saying that our partners shouldn't be able to do that for each other. But the truth of the matter is if you're sitting around wanting him or her to notice how sexy you are, how good you look, how well you drive, how hard you work, you may not get that verbal affirmation. And you definitely don't want to justify what you're doing because of unmet needs. Now, we're going to be talking about needs today because I've got Thomas Gagliano on the show, and he's going to be talking about the messages one receives as a child and how that then plays out in our adult lives. And so he really believes that there are a lot of messages you get as a kid that feed into that need to medicate when you get older. Possibly you're the people pleaser or you're the caretaker. And it's so important that you pay as much attention to yourself as you do others. If your role is to take care of your parents, or your siblings. As a child, you will probably end up with a very needy spouse. Now, we all have that give and take in a relationship, right? I mean, you guys know my, my situation. Married 22 years, and I've never had to do a toilet bowl. My husband likes to clean. And he says, I don't clean as well as he does. So he does it for me and for him. And I'm okay with that. I try to make up for that in other ways. There's got to be that give and take. And if you're in a relationship right now, that may be difficult. Because the truth of the matter is, you may have a spouse who's very angry with you, very hurt, very depressed. And so if that is the case, then you've got to figure out how to give unconditionally with expecting very little while he or she heals. That is, boy, that is the playground of a couple where sexual betrayal has occurred. And so I want you to think about that. And I want you to think about what it is that you wish you were getting more of and figure out a way to give that to yourself. Does that make sense? 
then if you figure out a way to give it to yourself, you'll be much more likely to feel satisfaction and complete, less dependent and needy. And if you're giving too much to someone else, more than likely, you're exhausted. And so think about what it is that you would like more of in your own life and how you can get it. And the truth of the matter is you're more than likely going to be able to find ways to give it to yourself. Or, you know, when in a relationship, we do a lot of, we do a lot of compromising, negotiating, telling, telling ourselves that, you know, we'll accept, we'll accept what is needed, right? If we also know how to give it to ourselves. All right. So, it's the 4th of July this weekend, and that can be a very triggering time for sex addicts and partners together. You know, it's a time when people are drinking. It's a time when inhibitions are low. It's a time when you're, you're experiencing people in the least amount of clothes. Please take care of yourself for the weekend. You know, have a backup plan. Have some accountability buddies that you can check in with and um, keep yourself on the right track, decreasing those urges and cravings. Fourth of July should mean freedom from a lot of things, and that includes sexual addiction. All right, so I'm very excited to have my friend and how she's been on the show, I think, at least two times, if not three. He's always got an important message about inner child work and those childhood messages that have formed you. So, Thomas Gagliano, welcome to Sex Health with Carol the Coach. How are you? Thank you, Carol, for having me on again. My pleasure. Oh, yes. And, you know, you really help people with all the baggage they carry from their childhood. And so many sex addiction therapists believe that that is the culprit to what the foundation of sexual addiction was. So tell tell us a little bit, if you will, about how you got into this field and how you're contributing to it right now. Thank you. You know, like many others, I got into this field because I had devastations in my life and it caused a miracle. I'm a recovering addict, uh, multiply blessed, in fact, and it was really um, my addictions that brought me to bottoms, specifically my wife and children leaving me for a while, that I said, you know what, maybe it's not the world that's the problem. Maybe I have something to do with it, which... uh, which which gave me the title of my book, The Problem Was Me, which my wife loved, of course. But the point was that 
uh, I had to start to look inside of myself and stop blaming the world and take responsibility. And then uh, I was in the, uh, uh, I was my, a self-made businessman. I always did very good in business. Funny how uh, many of the attributes that made me successful in business crippled my relationships, like self-reliance, control, not taking direction, all those wonderful things. And um, it was, uh, I just turned the corner when I got into self-help, into 12 steps, into therapy. And I wanted to give back. And, and, and I, uh, uh, I went back to school for my master's degree at 50 years old. I got my master's degree. Um, and that's what happened. I started to run groups. And what I noticed many times was that most of what the problem with sex addiction and all addictions, mind you, is the addiction becomes an intimacy substitute. It substitutes for real intimacy. And it really, those of us that are uh, addicts are really um, emotional cripples, if you will. We, we don't know how to do this thing called emotional intimacy. And when we're discomforted, when we have conflict, instead of trusting people to go to for our needs, we have learned early on, and I'll get into that in a minute, what happens to the child We've learned early on that addiction can do for us what people can't. And the addiction becomes our God, our oxygen, until we start to uh, get into a process that we can't control. That's the key. Many addicts, all addicts, they don't like to be involved in any process that they can't control. And you can't control your recovery. Your recovery needs to be in charge of you. And that's one of the big dilemmas with people that get into help. They still want to take control of the process. That doesn't work. Well, absolutely. And, you know, you understand addiction very, very well. And and yet I do believe, wasn't the first book that you wrote, um, The Problem Was Me? Wasn't that the first one? Right. Yeah, that was the yeah, first and, one. And, yep. And what would you say the premise of that book was? The premise of the book was that as children, those of us that came from childhoods that we felt that we didn't matter, okay, um, we don't stop loving our parents, we stop loving ourselves. And that kind of child becomes fragmented, splits into two parts. And that kind of child, one part is the mask that they show the world, and then there's an inside part that they dare not show anyone. It's the part that's unlovable. It's the part that they want to hide. And what I do with my groups and with my clients and, is to get them to be congruent, to be oneself, who they are, they are. What they say they mean, what they mean they say. And I know for me coming from a tough childhood, you know, when my father was out drinking, at 10 years old, I never had the ability, like any 10-year-old, to say, gee, my dad needs a 12-step program. My dad's hitting my wife, my wife. My dad's hitting my mom. You know, he's got issues. At 10 years old, I say, what's the matter with me that my father doesn't want to be around me? He doesn't come home at night. What's the matter with me? That is the premise of what starts the addictive thinking at an early age. And that thinking gets fragmented into two parts. And that's what addicts are until they get into recovery. They wear a mask. They show the world one part, all different masks. Some addicts are successful. Some aren't in the world of business. Some addicts, uh, we come in all varieties of colors, of religions, of everything, all different from the outside. But it's the inside piece 
where we all connect. That broken piece, we're all the same. That's why in my groups, we teach each other to be witnesses to each other so that when we start to move forward in our lives with our wives, our kids, our, our husbands, whoever that is, we bring it to group and group becomes a testing ground on how to do this thing called emotional intimacy that we never learned as children. There was no modeling as children. What we learned as children was that intimacy was fearful, painful. So if that's what you got, why in God's name would you want to be intimate with somebody if all the messages you saw between your parents was one of pain and fear? I ain't doing that. Why would I do that? But I got to get those needs met somewhere else. Here comes the, the addiction. That makes so much sense. Now, let me ask you. You reference a term called egocentricity, and you say that that has a right. powerful effect on the cause of sex addiction. So what are you referencing there, and how do you see that link? That is probably uh... – Erickson wrote about that. Probably what I picked up in college more than anything is that all children believe the world revolves around them. It's just the nature of the child at a certain age when their core beliefs are formed. So egocentricity means, again, if my parents don't pay attention to me, uh, like my, my son asked me when he was five years old, Dad, what are you getting me for Father's Day? <laughs> the world revolves around him. He doesn't know that it's not about him. That's the thing with people, when they, uh, children are egocentric, they all internalize that it must be their fault, which then, again, would lead to fragmentation if you were not given the positive messages that you should have gotten in childhood. And then, and then we go into a, a time-traveling process. See, this is what I tell couples all the time. You know, when we come from tough childhoods, we're time traveling all the time with our spouse. What do I mean by time traveling is that sometimes our wife or husband says something and we hear something completely different. What they say is not what we hear. Why does that happen? Well, because we're time traveling. For instance, to me, when I'm with, when I'm with you know, my wife, she could tell me something uh, very benign like you forgot to take out the garbage. And from my childhood of feeling like I was always a bad kid, I just heard she called me a bad husband. Is that what she said? No, that's not what she said. That's what I heard. So I try to get couples to get on the same filter so that what you say is what you hear. Tell each other your stories. Because when you come from tough childhoods, you're always time traveling. My wife could be totally different from my mother, but yet there's certain triggers that I time travel back to that scared little kid, and I go in that self-survival mode, and I'm trying to survive whatever is going on. And because I'm in survival mode, I'm either shutting down like I used to as a kid, running away like I used to as a kid, or getting angry as a kid. And it doesn't mean my wife's like my mother, but the, it, the feelings are the same. Yeah, I so get that. And what a turbulent childhood you lived. And then that's what so many of our clients that's the life they live. That's why we deal with addictions, whether it's sex addiction, mm -hmm. substance addiction, alcoholism, gambling. Um, yep. Wait, explain, explain fragmentation. I fragmentation. fragmentation yeah, it I'm sorry. Creates, yeah, it also creates sex addiction, doesn't it? 
Oh, without a doubt. Well, would ha- what is, again, if you believe my theory that sex addiction becomes an intimacy substitute, any addiction becomes an intimacy substitute, and we're not really getting what we believe our feelings met with people, we're getting it met in our diluted way through addiction. And what fragmentation is, is when that child breaks into two pieces and he's fragmented. And the, the first piece is what they show the world. The inside piece, they dare not show the world. That's the part that felt unloved. And until the fragmentation becomes congruent through therapy, through group, through a therapeutic process, that person who stays fragmented will never really grow. They'll always have two pieces to themselves, and they'll never be congruent. Okay. So talk a little bit more about this process and traveling and the we process, not the me process. Well, all... If, if you go back to the problem before you go to the solution, you realize that addicts become very comfortable in unhealthy behaviors. They become comfortable in isolation. They become comfortable in shutting their feelings down. They become comfortable in victimhood, where they blame all others for what their problem is. So what happens is, as I explained before, the time traveling is where we confuse the voices of our past with the voices of the here and now, where again, if I came from a childhood where I was criticized very strictly, sometimes my wife may say something to me, and all I hear is she's calling me a bad husband, or, or the other way around. If my wife was criticized a lot in childhood, I may say to her, you know, I'd, I'd, li- I'd like the other chicken you make better than this one, and she may hear that I called her a bad cook. We're all filtered through our time traveling process. And the we process, not the me process, is how we get better. I believe all addicts need to make their recovery we process. Why? Because if they're only talking to themselves, they're talking to the wrong person. They're, not, they're the reason they got to where they, where they got to. So we have to allow witnesses, other people, into our lives to guide us in this thing called recovery. But the addict can't be in charge of that. Now, again, here's the problem. The addict lost trust in people very early in their life. Now you're telling them recovery is to trust people. That's not an easy thing for an addict to do. Yeah, I know. I absolutely, that's part of dealing with a good men's group is that they get to begin to trust each other in the group and create the family of choice that they didn't have with their childhood experiences, right? A hundred percent. That's, my, all, all of my groups, the guys in all my groups will say that time and time again, this is my family. This is the family I never had. And because everybody in the groups know each other so well, um, they also know when their scared little child is coming into the group, when all of a sudden they aren't able to share their feelings or they're not able to have the uncomfortable conversations with their wife or their children. So everybody picks up on when that scared little kid comes in and we talk about how to put on our big boy shoes and to take care of that scared little kid inside of each and every one of us as addicts, nurture that scared little kid, but also champion that scared little kid to say it's going to be okay. I got this. Let's not make up horrible stories. All addicts make up horrible stories. And what I mean by that is they 
all make up a story that has a bad ending to it. If I talk to my wife, it's going to have a bad ending. We're either going to fight or, or it's not going to help or she's going to blame me. I'm going to blame her. Sure, that'll happen unless you start to learn. And this is what I talk about in my, my third book that I'm writing now, how to have the uncomfortable conversations. Um, because addicts don't believe that if I have an uncomfortable conversation, anything good could come out of that. So that's a process they have to keep, like riding a bicycle, you're going to fall off in the beginning. But if you keep riding it, you're going to learn how to ride it. And that's part of what we do in group. We role play a lot. We help each other in, in the role play on what feelings might come up. Um, and all of this stuff, you know, gets us ready for the outside world. But as I always say, we go from a scared little kid to an empowered adult. And so how do men join your um, men's group? What do they have to do? Well, uh, it, 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 the, the, the groups I have here are all people that live in the area, but I'm, I'm getting a lot of clients because I do do a lot of keynote speeches. I do podcasts. Anybody who wants to hear my podcast can go to the problem was me on the search bar, and they can hear my podcast starting from the first one. So. I've gotten many, many customers who listen to my podcast, and either the wife will email me and say, oh, my God, what you said is exactly what my husband is. Can you help him? And I go, whoa, whoa time out. Why isn't your husband emailing me? Why are you emailing me? Because you know, Carol, that people get better when they want to, not when they need to. So, you know, I get a lot of these emails from my podcast, and that's how I pick up, you know, all my clients, and I have them all over the uh, – really all over the world. I have clients all over the place that call in and stuff. My groups are basically people that live in the vicinity. But again, I think I'm going to start to create Zoom groups um, for all, all, all others that don't live in the area because I'm getting a lot of clients now that really, really, uh, really want to be a part of a group. Well, so what I'm hearing you say is if somebody lived in the area, where, where is your office located? It's in North Brunswick in Central Jersey. Now, I have, I have you know, clients from Manhattan that come to my groups. Um, I have people from South Jersey, North Jersey. So it's not everybody who completely lives in a 20-minute span. But, uh, but the clients that come to my group, uh, the group is important enough for them that they will come. Um, I, <laughs> believe it or not, I had a guy come from, a guy in one of my groups is from Maryland. Um, and, uh, you know, he, uh, he tries to make it that he can come here at least twice a month. My group, so one, um, they run Mondays, um, once a week, the same day each week. Uh, but, um, you know, I do have people that come from different states to come into the group once a week. And we do a lot of Zoom, you know, since the virus hit. A lot of people, a lot of my uh, groups go Zoom, then in person, Zoom, then in person like that. But, um, you know, I have clients all over the place. I think they resonate a lot with my speaking uh, and with my podcast uh, where, you know, again, I've had, I just had a, a new client come to group that said he heard my first podcast and he broke down. He says, it freed me to understand that, you know, I wasn't a bad kid. I just had a bad childhood. And that's a big, big, uh, a big question there. You know, we're not responsible for our childhood, Carol, but we are responsible for healing our wounds in adulthood or we're just going to hurt people around us and hurt ourselves. 
Well, you know, I understand that. I One of my most favorite coaching principles is I am 100% responsible for my behaviors. And right. what that does is it holds me accountable not for what happened to me, but how I handle it. And that's what I think both yeah. of your books have been so good about is having, you know, you teach people why they feel the way they do, and then you grow them up so that they don't continue to experience maladaptive coping skills that really just continue to cut them at the knees. Yeah. I, I think we live in a world today, quite honestly, that I know for me as a child, I was, you know, molested, victimized in many different ways, and I was very angry inside. And I was the kid that got in fights and did all these things. And, you know, I realized at some point that, you know, no matter what the world did, it was not going to fix what was broken inside. And I think we see a lot of this in our country today. I think, uh, you know, if, if, if people that are angry out there got everything they wanted, they think that that would make them better, but it wouldn't. It wouldn't fix the insides any more than it fixed my insides when I was a kid. And I was hurting everybody in fights and getting into trouble. Um, it wasn't the world that was going to fix me. I had to fix me. And I think it's an important piece to know that. You know, I can't, be, I can't give anybody my power and expect that I'm going to be okay. I have to fix what's broken inside of me. And that's what responsibility really is. You know, if I'm working on my shoulder and it's my foot that's the problem, I ain't getting anywhere. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Now, let me ask you, obviously, you believe that congruency and self-regulation is imperative uh, for, to help the sex addict heal. Talk a little bit mm-hmm. about that. The book talks about that. Yeah, yeah. I, you see, I think that when I was a child, I think my brain protected me from pain. And my brain protected me from feeling feelings because feelings to me were hurtful. You know, with my dad, mom, and, you know, uh, my mom, I was her surrogate husband because my father was never around. It was very unhealthy um, with my mother and with my father. He just was a, you know, a sex addict, a alcoholic gambler who was never around. So, it was a painful childhood, and I think my brain protected me from that pain, but distracted it into something else. And again, as soon as I was old enough to get that something else, you know, when you, you, the hormones and the, and the driver's license and all these things where now I can go out and get that something else, that's really how I started my addictions. And that's most people start their addictions, I think like 90% start their addictions in their teenage years. And that's not a coincidence. You know, that's what happens when you're not really able to regulate discomfort and pain uh, with people. Rather, you distract it and eat something else. So we talk about that in my groups all the time. How are you regulating your discomfort? I talk about relapse prevention. And one of the big things is when we stop eliminating our, we start eliminating our witnesses, when we stop uh, going to those therapists, groups, 12-step sponsor, all the people that know our truth, and we're especially not talking about the big problems in our life. Again, we're holding them inside, and we're not talking about that and regulating that with those witnesses. And if we start to do that, we have this victim mentality that comes upon us. 
that somehow gives us this destructive entitlement. It gives me permission to go and do things regardless of the pain it causes myself or others. And I think that's the addictive thinking and the, the way the pattern develops. It's a ritualistic thinking that starts at A and already, already the person has started their sexual acting out and they don't even know it. Because they're not up to the porn piece yet or the massage piece yet or the uh, affair piece yet. It begins with that discomfort that gets acted out at some time period later that day or the next day, but it starts with that discomfort. And if I'm not talking about that discomfort, I go into isolation, I shut down, and I go into this destructive entitlement. And at that point is when I'm starting to act out physically. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, obviously, like you said, you were the surrogate parent, well, the surrogate husband for your mother. And that's a horrible place to be when you feel that kind of enmeshment and you feel guilty if you get out and you feel guilty if you're in it. And you developed maladaptive coping mechanisms too. And, and yet Absolutely. You, you had this breakthrough. You had this insight. How did you get there, Tom? How did you figure it out? You know, I think that, I, I, you know, um, there's nothing like life experiences. There really isn't. And I, I'm, not a, I'm not the kind of guy that gets A's on tests or I'm an A student by any means. I'm more of a C student. But the one thing I think I do have is a little bit of a talent for human behavior and understanding things, maybe a little clearer than others did, and I think that early on I knew that I needed to heal what was broken in me. And, and I got into recovery early enough um, in my life. And I really just kept listening to many people in recovery that had what I wanted, many people that walked through all of this stuff that I'm talking about. And I just put it together in my own way um, to be able to, to, to see the reality of things a little bit easier. And that's what I did. I used to run groups in my house uh, before I even went to school free of charge. I used to do 12-step groups. I'd do step one with sponsees, step two, step three. And I just got a lot of wisdom and a lot of experience from other people. And I think that's what really carried me into doing what I'm doing today. And I think that's why, Carol, a lot of people, when I speak, resonate with what I'm saying. You know, I'm not the guy that speaks with big syllables. I'm not the guy that... Uh, you know, I'm a guy, you hear my voice and you say, oh, this guy's got to be from Brooklyn. And, and that's, that's, what, that's what people see in me, somebody that's very relatable. And I think that's why people, um, you know, find me attractive in that way. Well, that, you know, yeah, you're likable as well as they're at ease with you. And that's really what counts, especially when there's a lot of shame and pain. Uh, right. With, right. From, I know that you have a couple life skills. I mean, I, I told you mine. One is I'm 100% accountable for my behavior. A second one is to go in for the big ask. And I know that you feel it's important to learn how to be curious in your relationship. And why do you think that's so important for addicts? Well, I think, you know, if you think about an addict's childhood, I don't think many addicts came from a childhood where their parents were curious with them, where their parents would say, hey, Tommy, how you doing today? You look upset. 
hey, Tommy, you know, how'd your day go? Or Sue, um, how'd you do in that test? How did you, we didn't have a lot. Now, I don't mean control. That's when you, you're telling the child constantly what they should do, how they should act. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about asking a lot of questions. And I realized in my own childhood and what I give to my children is that curiosity. How are you doing? What, what, what happened today that was a good part of your day? What was the worst part of your day? That curiosity, even with wives and husbands, what I teach in my groups is also that piece with them where, where um, I teach them to be curious with your wife. Ask her how she's doing, what's going on. Be curious. It gives the message that they matter. And I think many addicts never came from a childhood where they felt like they mattered. So that's why I think curiosity being curious is a very important piece in all of our relationships um, around us. That makes a lot of sense. And so you would encourage men and women alike to be curious mm-hmm. because that's how they'll, they'll actually open up to other possibilities and, and thoughts and beliefs uh, that maybe mm-hmm. were squelched when they were a child and taking care of their mother or father or, or being a people pleaser or being a caretaker. And, and I know that you truly believe that when you grow up with, with childhoods that, that squelch creativity and curiosity, it really does leave that hole that needs to be medicated. And so can right. you say a little about what childhood messages should people be aware of as they scan their own life um, to try to find meaning in, in how they lived as a child? Well, I think, Carol, we all get set up into the roles that we play. For instance, you mentioned people please a caretaker, controlling role. All of these roles are set up by the messages we receive in childhood. For instance, to me, being my mother's caretaker, um, I felt that I needed to make others happy first in order to be happy myself. So it created a caretaking role, a codependency role, whereas I grew up, I felt something in my thinking said, I need to make other people happy if I'm going to be happy. Now, if I take care of myself first, my backwards thinking is telling me I'm being selfish when it's self-care. So many people in childhood get messaging that really confuses selfishness and self-care. They think if I take care of myself, especially those that were caretakers to their parents and lost their childhood from that, when they start to take care of themselves first, there's a message that goes off in their head that says, I'm being selfish. No, you're not being selfish. You're taking care of yourself first. And this is part of the roles that we get set up to play in our childhood, that was just one example, based on the messages we, we receive. And then we develop in my book, The Problem Was Me, this inner critic, this warden I call him and her, that inner critic that is constantly on our back, silencing ourselves and not allowing us to share our feelings. And that inner critic is really what sets up a lot of the roles that we, that we set up to play as children. And it all comes from early childhood messages. So what I tell parents is this, and I say this to couples as well. First and foremost, you need to validate and acknowledge your children's feelings 
and, and your partner's feelings. You don't have to agree with them, but at least hear them and validate those feelings and acknowledge those feelings. And start, and also don't always weaponize the past against each other because then you go through, then, then you go down that destructive dance. And once you're in the destructive dance, nobody's going to hear anything. You become victims to each other and your hearing shuts off. So it's very important, again, to validate and acknowledge a child who feels that their feelings are acknowledged and, and validated feels like they're important. A child that feels like their feelings are not acknowledged and validated feels like they're not important. So it goes into identifying the child for who they are. In other words, these are the children that if they make a mistake in life, they believe they are a mistake. They identify their whole being as a mistake. And this is what happens when we're not validating and acknowledging uh, our children's feelings. We don't have to agree. They don't make the rules. We have, again, the choices they make. If they choose not to make their bed at night, they choose not to, you know, get ice cream the next day. It's their choices. But we need to validate and acknowledge their feelings so they feel like they're important. Well, I'm all about acknowledgement. That's part of my empathy uh, formula. You know, the very yep. first thing you do is acknowledge uh, what you want, mm-hmm. what you need, believe what your pain is i mean acknowledgement is important and finding healthy Absolutely. people to acknowledge too helps to uh validate your own sense of self now i'm going to ask you about right. one more thing before we end today and sure. i'm always talking to partners about boundaries and you say very important that you really feel like yeah boundaries are important for everyone so say a little bit about that well, listen, you know, we're going to get into conversations with our partner. We're going to get into conversations with our children. And nobody's allowed to abuse anybody in a conversation. You know, and abuse could be just shutting down. It's a form of abuse and not sharing. Abuse could be raging, whatever it is. And I tell clients all the time, boundaries are short and specific. Boundaries are important because it tells you you're taking care of yourself, that you're important. So when, when you're having a conversation with your partner and if you're trying to share your feelings and, and, and validating and acknowledge the other person's feelings, if you feel that, you know, you, your feelings are not being validated, it's important to say that, to say, listen, I'm having this conversation with you because I want to get close to you. But if, if you're going to rage at me or yell at me, I'm not going to do this. So boundaries are short and specific. When we start to go down the wrong street in a conversation, we don't come back. We go to the destructive dance. So to stop the destructive dance, sometimes you've got to end the conversation. And we have to just make it short and specific and not explain our boundaries. You don't, if your boundaries are fair, you don't explain it. Listen, I can't have this conversation with you if you're going to yell at me. We'll have it another time. I'm, I'm finished. I can't do this. So boundaries are very important. Not that there always has to be used, but if the, if the conversation is going down a destructive dance, you have to put your boundaries out there and stop it because it never comes back once it goes down that wrong street. Both become victims to each other and both stop having the ability to hear the other one's needs. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that, that helps not only to protect oneself, but also to be clear and direct about what you feel is acceptable and not acceptable. So, right, Tom, right, I'm gonna, right. I know you, you've got this website, theproblemwasme.com, 
And then your right. podcast can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts, but it's also on that website, correct? Uh, yeah, I think, I, you know, that's a good question. I know in my Instagram, I have a big Instagram following, and that's also at the problem with me. Uh, I know it's on my Instagram uh, uh, up there. Uh, you know, it's a good question. I don't know if it's really on my website. It's a good question. Um, I do have the link. If anybody has a problem finding it, you can email me as well. And that's my name, Thomas Gagliano, nj at gmail.com. And if you email me, I can give you the link. That's a good question, Carol. Honestly, I'm not sure if I have it on there or not, the link to my – but anyway you listen to podcasts, if you go in the search bar and put in the problem with me, they'll pop up. And start at number one. They're, they're, they start at number 27. I, I wish they would reverse it, but Apple has it the wrong way around. But start at number one, um, and that starts with childhood messages. And you'll see in all the podcasts, I always bring in childhood messages in some way, shape, or form, because really childhood messages impact the intimacy we have or don't have, our parenting skills, the careers we choose. Every part of our life is impacted by our childhood messages. Oh, 100%. And Thomas Gagliano, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. And I want to encourage anybody to go look at his work. Uh, the website is www.theproblemwasme.com. Dot com. You take care and let me know when that next book comes out and we'll have you back. Thank you, Carol. Always a pleasure. All right. Have a take good care. All right. Okay, so that was Thomas Gagliano, and he is all about inner child work and getting it right. And so... His message tonight was the childhood messages feed addiction if you grow up in an unhealthy environment. So you have a good 4th of July. Set yourself up for a lot of support. You know, that's what, that's what your mentors, your sponsors, your fellowship's all about. It's about creating that family of choice. And we'll see you back here next week for more sex help with Carol the Coach. Make it a good one.